Welcome to the Hoffmantown Church Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this week's message from Hoffmantown Church. Acts uh, chapter 21. We're going to be looking at this uh, this morning, and I've been chewing on this for quite some time. And it's just a, an amazing passage because it's really the end of Paul's third missionary journey. He's been traveling. He's been going throughout. We've looked at uh, what he had to say to the Ephesian elders and warning them uh, concerning wolves from without coming in, potentially wolves being within the body that have never been identified, never been admonished, corrected, um, brought to light, and then errorists, people from within the body who perhaps come in uh, and begin to teach things uh, that are not biblical, that are not scriptural. Clearly within that passage, he's, he's talking about the gospel of God's grace, and he's talking about grace. He's not talking simply about coming to Christ. He's talking about walking in Christ as well. And you can see that throughout the entire uh, book of Acts, this report that Luke has written. I got a, a magazine, and, and um, some of them hit file 13 uh, at first glance, but this one I like. It's called Knowing and Doing. It's the C.S. Lewis Institute. I don't know if you get that or if you've ever looked online at their stuff, but they've got some really solid things. And the, there's a little quote that um, caught my attention at the bottom by Francis Schaeffer. Have you heard of Francis Schaeffer? You know who I'm talking about? Uh, he was in Switzerland for years in a place uh, called Labrie and up in the mountains. So I, I like him because anybody from Switzerland is a friend of mine, you know, because uh, I'm from Switzerland, if you didn't know that. But he says this, uh, and I think this is a really a great way to capture Uh, something that we're going to see in this particular passage. He says, I believe more and more that this is truly the central task of the Christian. Now, that's a pretty profound moment, right? You, You say the central task. We always talk about what is the will of God? What is it that God wants for us? What is the Lord doing in our lives? What is he doing it for? What's the purpose? We've got all these conversations about purpose. He says, this is really the central task of the Christian, listen to this, to give the Lord the opportunity to exhibit his existence. To give the Lord the opportunity to exhibit his existence. That's pretty profound, isn't it? How is the Lord exhibiting his existence Not only in your own personal life, but perhaps in your married life, perhaps in your family life, into the community. What about Hoffmantown Church? How is the Lord exhibiting his existence through us? See, I think that's pretty profound. And when we really begin to think about it, we need Christ in order to be able to do that. Amen? Uh, if we're going to wake up one day and say, here's the plan program, here's the 10 steps to a better life, and I, I can use all these things as a checkbox in order to do Christianity, we got a problem. We had a particular moment over the last couple weekends where we listened uh, to an individual uh, speaking about the marriage relationship. And this individual said this to the, the two that were being married, you are patient, You are kind. You, and you can fill in the blank. And Steph and I were sitting there going, what? What? That's antithetical to what we believe as Christians, as believers. Christ is patient. Christ 
is kind. And when we learn to die to self and recognize what we're not, then God begins to exhibit who he is in and through us. Folks, we're living in a day and age where we've turned things a little bit upside down. We've taken Christ right out of the equation, unfortunately, in many different ways. And in this passage, what I, what I want you to see is how the Apostle Paul, even though he knew that he was going to suffer, even though he had people coming to him to tell him that he was going to suffer by going to Jerusalem, Paul says, what of it? I know that. But I'm ready to die for the gospel. I'm ready to die for the Lord. Self-sacrifice, willingness to die to self, a willingness to say yes to the Lord so that he might be exhibited in and through our lives. Look at Acts chapter 21, verses 1, and we're going to look through verse 14. Only dying to self leads to new life. I think that's an important moment, not only for each of us personally, but corporately. Only dying to self leads to new life. And if we're not as disciples of Christ, walking with him, following with him by faith, if we're not learning to die to self by saying yes to the Lord, then the question is what is actually being exhibited through our lives? I would suggest that it's religion, which has no strength, it has no power of God behind it. There's two undertone stories, two underlying stories that have have really been uh, in and through the whole book of Acts. And the first is the confrontation with the Jewish legalists. You can see this everywhere Paul goes, right? First, second, third journey. He's at the end of his third journey. He's about to go to Jerusalem. He's being warned that he's going to come into confrontation. Uh, Circumstances here, he's going to be in chains. He's going to be bound, etc., He's going to suffer. He's going to be persecuted, which Paul is very aware of and certainly has gone through quite a bit of already. But an underlying story in the book of Acts is when we stand for the gospel of Christ, there, there will be persecution. And Paul understands that. He understands that walking through this in the strength of Christ is the way to get through it. The second underlying story, the first being the Jewish legalists and the the confrontation that takes place there, is also Paul's desire to go to Rome. And we see this at at the end now of his third missionary journey. In the midst of that, he's made it very clear that he wants to go to Rome. He's written the book of Romans already, and he's already expressed to them, I can't wait to come to you in order to share with you the gospel. Which is interesting because it it helps us understand the gospel isn't just for unbelievers, it's actually for believers. In fact, more times than not, it's spoken of as being for believers. We need the gospel. We need to be reminded of the truth of the gospel, which is that Christ has done something for us that we could never do on our own, that he now lives within us and he's able to do through us what he has never expected us to be able to perform for him. We need the Lord. (laughs) The basis of the gospel is grace. Grace in coming to the cross, certainly grace as we walk from the cross and we walk with the Lord as we begin to say yes to him and he begins to exhibit his life in and through our lives. Dying to self is, is a huge issue for disciples, for believers. And I would suggest this, self preservation Self-preservation will not lead to the building up of the body of Christ or the advancement of his kingdom. 
self-preservation doesn't get us anywhere. If all we're worried about is protecting our own lives, our own ministries, our own work, whatever, you can put it in the box. K-group leaders, if all you're worried about is your class, right? If all we're worried about is a specific area of ministry, if all we're worried about is protecting whatever, I don't see that in the Word of God. Because the Lord is more concerned about ministry and service and exhibiting himself in and through our lives than we could even begin to imagine. When we begin to protect, when we begin to put walls up, whatever it may be, in a wrong way, where we're not thinking about the kingdom of God, we're not building up the body of Christ, we're not thinking about what Christ wants, we're not dying to self, we're not yielding our lives to him then what happens? We, by default, begin to orchestrate our lives around defending things that are not essential. They may look good, they may sound good, but they're not essential. They're certainly not eternal. We need the Lord in this. We need to have the right framework of thinking. We need Christ to begin to deal with us individually, personally, transformationally, and then in and through us to begin to exhibit his life. And when that happens, God will begin to lead us individually. He will begin to lead our families. He will begin to lead the family of God, the body of Christ. And God will begin to support, sustain, and be responsible for the fruit that is produced. John chapter 12, verses 24 through 25 deals with this. The Lord says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. Totally antithetical to the way we think. We're all about self-preservation. We're all worried in some way, shape, or form about something that deals with ourselves. And sometimes that spills over into our service. Sometimes that spills over into our activity. (laughs) Suddenly we're the ones that think that we're responsible for for making things grow. and, And ultimately we know God's the one that causes the growth. Folks, if you haven't fallen into that yet, believe me, just wait a little while. Do we depend upon the Lord? Do we trust on the Lord? Trust in the Lord. Because the Lord is the one that's able to sustain. The question is, are we learning to die to self no matter what we face? The question is, are we walking with the Lord in such a way that in dying to self, by saying yes to the Lord, God is exhibiting his life in and through us, not only personally, individually, but also corporately. That's the issue. Because God is able. God is able is adequate. Only through self-sacrifice, only through learning to die to self, will the Lord be revealed, exhibited, in and through me, in and through my family, in and through us. That's it. And praise God when that happens, because then God is the one that is revealed, and the Lord is the one who begins to manifest his glory, his love, his goodness to all those around. 
All right, Acts chapter 21, verses 1 and 5. We're just going to walk through this. He says, when, he had part, uh, when we had parted from them and had set sail, we ran a straight course to Kos and the next day to Rhodes and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we came in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we kept sailing to Syria and landed at Tyre. For there the ship was to unload its cargo. This is very medical. Right? My dad's a doctor, so I can say this. Very precise, very clear. Luke is writing this. He's giving an account of all these trips. He wants to make sure that it's very detailed. And so he's uh, making sure that the end of Paul's third missionary journey is very clear. What they did, when did they do it, how did they do it, where did they go, who were they with, etc. Paul's on his way back to Jerusalem. And so Luke is simply giving us some of the detail of that particular trip. When I, when I read that uh, over the last couple weeks, I thought, man, I, I kind of, uh, I get this. I was in Cleveland, Ohio, then I went on to Bushkill, Pennsylvania, then I went on to Reading, Pennsylvania, then I went to New York City, passing through New Jersey. And by the way, I drove in Manhattan and did not have an accident. (laughs) Yes. My wife almost had a heart attack, but uh, we made it. (laughs) That's great. Then we went down to Williamsburg, and by the way, Colonial Williamsburg is phenomenal, my daughter loved it there, and, and so we wanted to go back because she's going to college in a few weeks. And so we, as a family, trudged through the 90-whatever-degree heat with 1,000% humidity. And Jonathan watched them figure out how they had put books together, you know, 300 years ago using flour and water. It was pretty interesting. So we had a good time there. Then we went on the roller coasters at Bush Gardens. I promised my wife I would not. Actually, I really didn't promise that I wouldn't show the picture. <laughs> but I'm not going to show it. You can look at my Facebook page if you want to you befriend me, if you want to do that kind of thing. I don't get on Facebook very much, but it's very helpful to pass along uh, the picture. The picture. It was epic. It is epic. It's the four of us going down a roller coaster, 200-foot drop, and all of our hair is standing straight up. It's unbelievable. We laughed so hard because my wife literally did not see screaming from the moment we hit the crest to the moment we were getting off. Jonathan, am I lying? No, I'm not lying. It was epic. It was great. I said, this picture's a family heirloom. It's really, I hate paying the cost for those pictures, but that one had to have it. So I understand Paul. He's going through all these different things. Third missionary journey. Here he goes. He's gone all over the known world. He's spread the gospel all over the known world. He's shared the gospel all over the known world. And he's headed back now to Jerusalem. Verse 4, after looking up the disciples, we stayed there seven days and they kept telling Paul through the Spirit not to set foot in Jerusalem. Here's this theme. Here's this underlying tone. Everywhere that Paul goes, he's got people coming to him saying, don't go to Jerusalem. Don't go to Jerusalem. Right? Hang on to that. It's a fascinating moment here in the life of Paul. Here's an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ who has been faithful to follow the Lord, who's walked according to the word of God, according to the power of the spirit of God. He's been persecuted many, many times. He's on his way to Jerusalem. He wants to get to Rome, but 
people, good people, godly people, biblical people are telling them, don't do that. Verse 5, when our days there were ended, we left and started on our journey while they all, with wives and children, escorted us until we were out of the city. And after kneeling down on the beach and praying, we said farewell to one another. And then we went on board the ship and they returned home again. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemus, and after greeting the brethren, we stayed with them for a day. You know what I get out of this? I mean, very simply, this is just a report. It's a didactic kind of a a scroll, bullet point moment here. The, The beautiful relationships that these people had, phenomenal relationships. I mean, you you see the elders of Ephesus coming to be with Paul, and Paul is admonishing them, encouraging them, helping strengthen them. I'm not going to be with you anymore. And they weep when he leaves. Here, he looks up the believers, the disciples, and they all come together, and you've got this beautiful picture of harmony and unity, of deep relationship. Why? Because of the gospel of grace. Oh, I think that's precious. You know what I love about coming together like this? Is we get to see one another. You know, our world is so divided. It really is ironic, isn't it, that technologically we have the ability to communicate with one another far more expediently than perhaps ever in the history of mankind. I mean, Holland's in Romania and I'm on Viber talking to her and it sounds like she's next door. And yet, in the midst of it, somehow, some way, I feel like we've lost something. I feel like we're missing something. Relationships are divided. It's become all compartmentalized. One of the reasons I can't stand Facebook, forgive me for all of you Facebook lovers and... is that it compartmentalizes stuff. You you can put stuff on Facebook that's totally false, it's fake, it's a facade. There's no deep, real relationship there. You can say, this is what's going on in my life, but you never have to talk to the person. Post a picture, which is fine in and of itself. Baby bathwater, right? But when we go home and shut the garage door, there we are. See, what I see in this is deep, Value with relationship. Folks, how, how, do we, how do we value our relationships? Because if we can go back to Ephesians, the book of Ephesians for a moment, what was the main theme that came out of the book of Ephesians? Perhaps maybe not the main theme, but it certainly was there as an underlying tone. May I suggest to you that the entire book of Ephesians is about the body of Christ being unified and having a testimony as a result of that to the world. When, when we aren't forgiving one another, what kind of message does that send to the world? When we're not kind to one another, what kind of message does that send to the world? You say, well, the world doesn't know. Oh, yes, they do. Yes, they do. When they hear us speaking of one another in derogatory terms, what, what does that say to the world? What difference is found in coming to church than in going and maybe participating in another activity on a Sunday morning. 
See, folks, we're the, we're the body of Christ. We have relationship with God. And as a result of having relationship with the Lord himself, when we're yielded, when we're surrendered, when we've learned to begin to die to self and say yes to the Lord, then God in us begins to transform us, change us, shape us, mold us, and the fruit of the Spirit begins to be revealed through our lives. God begins to exhibit Christ through us. And that impacts the way we treat one another, the way we talk about one another, the way we deal with one another, all the relationships. Everything changes. Are we perfect? (laughs) Now, what? Come on. Of course not. But, But we recognize something, don't we? We should. We recognize the Lord gave his life for you, just like the Lord gave his life for me. And therefore, you have value because the Lord loves you deeply and passionately, just like the Lord loves me deeply and passionately. And we're brothers and sisters in Christ. What a beautiful picture. Kneeling down on the beach, praying together, saying farewell to one another. Can you imagine that picture? Believers knowing that they are in a world that is very antagonistic towards them, coming together and fellowshipping. I think we need to hang on to that picture, amen? Because I believe we live in a world that is very antagonistic towards us. And it is the relationships that we have with one another right here that begin to have the Lord exhibiting his life in and through not only us individually, but us corporately as well. Verse 8, on the next day we left and came to Caesarea and entering the house of Philip the evangelist. Remember him? Philip, he goes on to say, was one of the seven. They stayed with him. He had four virgin daughters who were prophetesses. Say that fast ten times. You know, I think that's kind of neat for ladies, right? God God spoke through these ladies in a very special way, these, these daughters of Philip, one of the seven who was an evangelist. He had gone on to Samaria and he had been used by the Lord with the Ethiopian union. I mean, there's all kinds of ways that God had used Philip. Phenomenal individual. And so obviously it made his home available. They come to Caesarea, which is clearly where Philip lives, and they stay with him. And in verse 10, it says, we were staying there for some days. A prophet named Agabus came down from Judea and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, this is what the Holy Spirit says. Now that, that's kind of profound, right? Agabus is an interesting guy. Back in Acts chapter 11, verse 28, he stood up. It says, Agabus stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that there would certainly be a great famine all over the world. And this took place in the reign of Claudius. I mean, this guy's known. He's prophesied, he has foretold, normally prophecy is forth-telling, forth-telling, sharing what does the word of God say. But there were special circumstances, particularly in, in this age period, this time, where there were things that were uh, allowed to be shared that were coming. And Agabus had shared, there's going to be a famine, and that did come to pass. I mean, this guy's got, he's got notoriety. 
He's established his credentials. He's got integrity. And he comes and he says, this is what the Holy Spirit says. So he's speaking for the Lord. In this way, the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we had heard this, we as well as the local residents began begging him not to go up to Jerusalem. Who's the we? Well, clearly it involves Luke. Evidently, it included Philip, one of the seven, somebody of importance within the body of Christ and the others that were there, including even local residents who were believers. So Agabus, Philip, Luke, all of these companions, people that were living there who are disciples of Christ, are in effect saying to Paul, do not go to Jerusalem. Agabus has taken Paul's belt, wraps it around, and he says, this is what the Holy Spirit is saying. If you go to Jerusalem, this is what's going to happen to you. Wow. I love Paul's answer. Paul answers, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. (laughs) It's pretty neat, isn't it? Think about that. Paul's listening to all these people. There are people that he has served the Lord with. There are people that he has suffered with, uh, with in terms of the proclamation of the gospel of grace. And he's saying, what are, you, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we fell silent, remarking, the will of the Lord be done. The will of the Lord be done. May it be accomplished. Whatever the Lord chooses to do, may it come to pass. Stop weeping. Don't break my heart. Paul's very compassionate. He's torn, I'm sure, within himself, listening to these dear believers. We know in other passages that he wrestled with the idea of going home. What's what's better, for me to go home or for me to stay here with you because you need me? He, He was a servant, He wanted to serve. He wanted to to bless and minister. And he had spent his whole Christian life sharing the gospel of grace and encouraging and admonishing, seeing people come to know Christ and then teaching them what it meant to walk with Christ by grace. I'm sure he's torn. He knows. But he says, what of it? I'm ready to die. Earlier on in chapter 20, in verse 24, he says, I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course in the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. I I think that ought to be on every wall. Think about that. What is our purpose? What are we here for? Isn't it to testify of the gospel of the grace of God? beautiful picture of somebody who's willing to die to self and in the midst of dying to self how the Lord was exhibiting himself through the apostle Paul what did the Lord said to the father in the garden of Gethsemane not my will but yours be done right I think God's always bringing us into circumstances where we have to come to that Lord, not my will, but yours be done. Lord, not my will, but yours be done. Lord, I say yes to you, and in so doing, I die to self so that you might be exhibited through me to the world. Your love, your grace, your kindness, your goodness, who you truly are 
can be revealed, manifested, made known through my life. I think the word will here is important. What God wills, let it be done. God has a directive will. God has a permissive will. The word that's used here is of what God alone is able to accomplish. The Lord's will be done. Whatever the Lord desires to accomplish and alone can accomplish, may that be done. Spiro Zoriadis defines it this way. This word for will is used to designate what God himself does of his own good pleasure. What God designates himself to do for his own good pleasure. And what's wonderfully beautiful about that is if we were to say that about ourselves, whatever I choose to do for my own good pleasure, we immediately should have a problem with that, right? Because we know ourselves, we know our flesh, and we know that whatever we choose to do in and of ourselves will ultimately be twisted in order to be self-serving. It'll be ultimately for us, for me, that I'm doing this. But with God, that's never the case. Whatever is for God's own good pleasure is always for our benefit It's always good. It's always right. It's never twisted. It's never self-seeking. It's never narcissistic. Because God is good all the time. Think about that. Whatever the Lord chooses to do, whatever he wants, we're good with that. How do you discern the will of God? That's a pretty big question, isn't it? I was talking with my uh, brother and my sister-in-law about that. We were talking about the will of God. I was sharing with them some of this that I was studying as we were traveling. And it, it's just a big question. There's a lot of young people today, millennials, etc. Every, everybody, well, what is the will of God? Well, I think that's an important question, isn't it? I mean, we certainly want to be in the will of God. We want to be walking in the will of God. Romans chapter 12 Verse 2, he says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Good, acceptable, and perfect. Perfect meaning complete. Good meaning it's actively always seeking out somebody else's good. Acceptable means it measures up. And the idea of perfect meaning it is complete. God's will is always good, acceptable, and perfect. I alluded to this, but let me, let me try to clarify this a little bit categorically, okay? God's will can be seen, I believe, in two parts, and I think the Bible's very clear on this. God has a permissive will, and God has a directive will. A permissive will and a directive will. He's sovereign over it all. But he permits, allows certain things. He directs, he causes other things. Okay? You can see that. Uh, His permissive will, you can see in the book of Job, in the way that he allowed Satan to do what he did. He had a plan. He was sovereign over it. He had a leash for Satan. Satan can only go so far. But you can see his permissive will. You can see how he allows certain things. Ultimately, all of it is for his glory, for the truth of who he really is to be revealed. In God's permissive will, 
I think it's important to understand that God does not cause evil. Evil doesn't originate with God. James says that God is light, that in him there's not even a shifting shadow. There's not the shadow of a shadow. God is pure. He's holy, absolutely. He does not cause evil. He's not the originator of evil. And we've got to be careful when things happen where we say that's evil and then we attribute it to God doing that. No, no, God allowed it. God has promised to bring good out of it for those who love him, but he's not the one who caused it to take place. And I'm sure that around this room there are many who have suffered very difficult, very challenging, very even evil things. I think I can say that about myself in growing up. But I've learned God had my best in mind. Even though he allowed these things, he's brought good out of it as a result. And I can trust the hand of my Father to do what's good all the time. He desires for all men to be saved. Right? God wants everybody to come to know him, to have a personal relationship with him, to be rescued from hell. I think that's unequivocal. He desires it, but he doesn't necessarily make it happen. It's up to the person to believe. The directive will of God, he causes certain things, judgments, etc. He alone is able to save. There's no question about that. He has the authority, the power, actually, to transform somebody, to rescue somebody from the kingdom of darkness and place them into his kingdom, the kingdom of light, to take them out of the family of, that's in effect under the wrath of God or under the wrath of Satan. Right? the principality of the air, darkness, and put them into the kingdom of light. God alone is able to do that. He's alone able to direct that, to cause that to happen, and he does that. He's righteous in his judgments. He will bring about justice. He will accomplish his will. There are certain things that are going to happen, folks. Some of you are studying Amos today. There are certain things that God said, this is going to happen. And who can thwart the will of God? Who can stand in his way as if somehow we can say, oh, no, that's, Lord, we're going we're gonna to stand in your way and keep you from doing what you've said you're going to do. Who can do that? The entire will of God, I think, can be summarized in a very simple idea, and I alluded to it earlier, and I'm going to simplify it even more, that Christ would be visible through us to the world. Christ would be visible through us to the world. I think it's very clear that as Christians, we are to die to self so that Christ may be exhibited through us to the world. The whole conversation of the will of God, I believe, can be really put into that context. Now, when we talk about the will of God, 2 Corinthians gives us a great picture of this. Chapter 2, verses 14 through 17, he says, Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests, makes himself known, visible through us, the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing to the one an aroma from death to death, to the other an aroma from life to life. Who's adequate for these things? For we are not like many peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight 
of God. Christ being made manifest, being made visible, exhibited through our lives personally, through our church corporately. I think there's obviously a personal will in the, in the sense that God is personal with each and every one of us. There's a corporate will. Personally, each and every one of us have a specific gift. God has a specific arena for us to serve in. He, he has very specific things about our lives. He's got good works uh, planned before the foundation of the earth for each and every one of us. That's an amazing truth. Even though we're, we're a corporate body, we're a body of believers, we don't lose our individuality. God recognizes that each and every one of us are created in his image, and he has something very special for each and every one of us. So discerning the will of God in the sense of the, the personal will that he has for each and every one of us is important. Certainly our life, our thoughts, our actions, the relationships that we have, all of that comes into play. Corporately, within the family, certainly within a relationship with a spouse, uh, children. We, we see it within our communities, within a nation. Obviously, within the body of Christ, the church. There's a corporate will. All of it is undergirded by the fact that God is true and that he never changes. So it doesn't matter whether you're talking about personal or corporate. There are certain things that are going to be Clear, they're going to be the same because God is the same yesterday as he is today, as he is forever. But they are individual. I would suggest they even go to the individuality of, of local churches. There's a foundation, Christ. There's certainly a calling in terms of making disciples. But the how may look different from church to church because God knows exactly how he wants to use a particular body of believers within a specific community. The foundation's the same. It's Christ and who he is. But maybe some of the details have a bit of a creative nuance to them. Amen. Praise the Lord. Let's get in touch with God, find out what he wants for Hoffman Down Church, and walk with him in his vision for this body of believers so that we can experience him, know him, and that he would be exhibited even more in and through our lives individually and corporately. God's will. God's will. I think there's three things, quickly. First, to glorify God. We talk about God's will. It always has the idea of his glory. Romans 11.36 says, For from him, meaning out of him, and through him, meaning by the means of him, and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. What a beautiful picture of ministry. From him, it's got to be out of him. Through him, whatever is from him, whatever is out of him, he is the one responsible for. He will sustain it. And whatever he sustains because it's been initiated by him, it's from him, guess what? He's responsible for the fruit because the fruit will glorify him. It goes back to giving him credit for what he alone is able to do. 1 John four sixteen says, We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is what? is love. He's love. And the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. How is God glorified in and through our lives? When we walk in his love. When he is exhibited through us. The fruit of the Spirit is love. We learn to die to self. 
we begin to walk in the glory of Christ, the strength of who he is, God begins to produce his love in and through us, and he begins to exhibit himself through our lives. So first, to glorify God. Secondly, to reflect God's holiness. The opposite of that would be to abstain from anything that is not holy, to abstain from impurity. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, your becoming holy. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Beautiful. The will of God is that we abstain from sexual immorality. That means pornography has nothing to do with God. That means living together before you get married has nothing to do with God. That means gay marriage has nothing to do with God. Right? Absolute. There's no question about this. What's God's will? It is that we would be sanctified, that we are becoming what God has already declared us to be. First Peter 4.2, he says, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer, think of this, to live the rest of the time, our lives here on this earth as believers, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God, but for the will of God. So God's will involves having him, be identified in and through our lives to glorify God, to reflect his holiness, the true character of who he really is. But also, I would suggest God's will involves doing good works. I believe we've been created for that. Righteousness, meaning activity that stands up, measures up to what God says is good, what is right. Matthew 5, 16, you know this well. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Or Titus 3, 14 says, Our people must also learn to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. 1 Peter 2, 15, he says, For such is the will of God that by doing right, doing right, You may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Clearly, in the midst of all that, there's a discernment. Hebrews 5 says solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern, distinguish, separate what's good, what's of God, versus what's evil, what's of my flesh. Are we learning to discern what activity is from God, what activity is out of my flesh? Are we learning to die to self so that Christ would be exhibited, manifested, made visible through our lives? Lastly, God's will never contradicts his word. When you're beginning to discern what is God's will, what's the Lord's will for my life, whether it's individually, whether it's corporately, as elders, as we pray through, Lord, what do you want as a body of believers as we pray through, what does the Lord want with Hoffmantown? God's will will never ever contradict his word. He uses prayer in order to reveal his word through, uh, uh, will through his word. He uses godly people. Seek advice, seek counsel from people that love the Lord, that are people of the word. He uses circumstances. You know, we were landing in uh, Chicago and it's, it's very windy, right? It's called the Windy City for a reason. And man, that thing came in and I hate landings. I like takeoffs. I really 
dislike landings. And, and that thing was pitching back and forth, right? Stephanie was in front of me in the seat in front of me because we were on Southwest and we weren't able to get on and sit together. So I reached up and just kind of held her shoulder, just patted her. It's okay. And in we come and you feel like you got it. Lord, be the wind beneath this plane's wings, you know, that kind of thing. But when that runway lines up, right, there's a, there's a sense of this is the direction that God has for us. Land the plane. Begin to walk in what God's will for your life is. Four questions about the will of God that maybe would be helpful to you as you're beginning to, Lord, what do you want? First of all, what's the burden on your heart? What burden has God placed on your heart that you know it's not from you? And you know it keeps coming back. Give God time to work there. Sometimes we have a burden of the heart and it was the pizza last night. Give, give God some time. Right? What's the burden of your heart? Does it line up with the word of God? How has the Lord given an opportunity to fulfill that burden? Maybe you have a deep burden for something and you're praying about it. You sense that's what, what the Lord wants. Then the question is, is there an opportunity that suddenly comes along and you go, whoa, wait a second. There's two flags that have lined up. Look at the opportunity God's brought to me. I didn't have to go running after it. Or maybe God led you somewhere and you see the opportunity and you recognize, hey, look at what God's doing here. Those two flags begin to line up. And thirdly, in the word, how is the Lord confirming his will personally to you? As you read the word of God and as you begin to spend time with the Lord in prayer and in his word, is there scripture that God brings to your mind and, and in the normal course of seeking after the Lord, God suddenly kind of highlights a particular passage and you go, oh my goodness, I can't believe it. I know I've read that verse before, but wow, does it pertain to the circumstances I'm in right now? And lastly, what has God done supernaturally that cannot be explained? Suddenly, the Lord does some things in your life. There are certain people, there are circumstances that, that come up, and you know you had nothing to do with it. And you look at it, and you go, whoa, whoa. Well, the, the Lord's put a burden on my heart. He's given me the opportunity. I've uh, raised up the opportunity for me to walk in it. And he's confirming that through prayer and through the word of God personally. And, and all of a sudden now there's circumstances that I can't explain that are taking place around me. Wow. I guess that's you, Lord. <laughs> God, he works. His will is always going to be based in his character. And one last thought. One of the things that I fear, and I've had to learn this too, and I have to continue to grow in this, but sometimes we get so bent on trying to do the works, trying to do the service, trying to do whatever it is that we feel like God has called us to, that we cut Christ right out of it. Ultimately, keep our eyes, keep your eyes focused on the Lord. Because guess what? The Lord wants you to know his will. But if you spend all your time trying to figure it out, instead of spending time with Christ, maybe you've become tone deaf and you're not listening to the Lord anymore. Keep the Lord the focus. And as we keep the Lord the focus, the Lord in his time and in his way will reveal his will. Amen? Paul went to Jerusalem knowing he was going to suffer. And he says, what's that? 
I'm ready to die for the gospel of God's grace. Are we living our lives in such a way that he is being exhibited to the world, not only individually through us, but corporately through us as well? Thanks for listening to the Hoffmantown Church Podcast. We'd love to hear how God is working in your life. Everyone has a story. Please tell us yours. Visit www.hoffmantown.org and click on the Tell Us Your God Story link on the homepage to share yours with us. Thanks for listening to our podcast, and we hope you will join us next week.